0: Can I encourage you to take your Bibles again and uh, just turn to the next page, 489. And we're going to read just the first section um, of Nehemiah chapter 6. Again, this is God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 6, page 489. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up. Out of your head, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, the son of Mahadabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, "Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you." By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to think about your word, we pray that the words we hear today with our ears may be grafted onto our hearts so that they would produce in us whatever it is that you would want to accomplish with them so help us by your Spirit. Amen. It was all going so well, wasn't it? It was all going so, so well. Okay, we started off in a pretty low place. Nehemiah heard that the city was in ruins, and it broke his heart. But since then, it's been blessing after blessing from God. God has answered Nehemiah's prayers in ways that you probably couldn't imagine. King Artaxerxes has given him permission to go and rebuild Jerusalem, he's given him provisions, and he's even given him cavalry to protect him. And last week we read about how everyone in Jerusalem seems to be on board helping building the wall the whole way around the city. Nehemiah's pipe dream, it's not a pipe dream anymore, it's becoming a reality. God's honor, which is at stake here, seems to be being built up along with the walls. One of the great things about the Bible, though, is that it never sugarcoats a story. It always tells it like it is. And the story of Nehemiah alerts us to the fact that when God is at work, opposition and obstacles will never be far away. The story of Nehemiah alerts us to the fact that as we try to build up the church here in Ravenhill even, as we try to reach out to this community, and we've seen that God is at work, opposition and obstacles will never be far away. And the story of Nehemiah alerts us to the fact that when God is at work in our own lives, as we grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus, opposition and obstacles will never be far away. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6, although the story in chapter 5 is a bit different, and I think we're going to look at that next week. There's an elephant in the room in these chapters. There's something going on here that isn't actually mentioned. Well, not really something, but someone. And even though Nehemiah doesn't mention Satan, he is the enemy here. To use language from the New Testament, he's shooting flaming arrows at the people here in Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6. What's going on here? It's spiritual warfare. Sure, Sanballat and, and others, they're mentioned as the ones who are attacking the people, but the real perpetrator is the evil one. And this is what we face too while God's at work here. And the reason Satan sends these flaming arrows at us is because he wants to attack God. He's not even really that worried about us. He just hates him. He wants to thwart God's plans, wreck his work, rob him of some of his glory. Now, we know that ultimately he won't have that victory, but that's what he is all about. So let's get stuck in. At the start of chapter 4, we're introduced to Sanballat. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly who he is, but we have some other ancient documents which tell us that he was the governor of Samaria. And that would make sense because the Bible tells us that the army of Samaria were in his presence. So in the Persian Empire, you have the king, King Artaxerxes. He rules over the whole thing. And then in different regions, you have these governors. And Sanballat would have been the governor who lived closest To Jerusalem. So if there was any threat of an uprising coming from Jerusalem, he would have to deal with it. But I don't think that's actually something that he's taking too seriously. We actually met him briefly last week in chapter 2, verse 19, when it says, When Sinbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, and we're going to see all of them again today. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Their questions weren't serious. Nehemiah tells us that they were mocking and ridiculing. But here in chapter 4, there's more. Verse 1, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. That word incensed has more of the sense in Hebrew of being vexed or maybe indignant we might say that he was pretty cheesed off. He, he wasn't just angry, he was kind of affronted, it was personal. He had ridiculed the Jews before about building this wall and now he'd heard that they were actually doing it. And so he ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria and he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Would you look at those Israelites? Sure, they're working together and, and it's going, but they're wasting their time. They're building from rubble. It's all burnt. It's pathetic. It's feeble. And then Tobiah joins in in verse 3. What they're building, if even a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. These guys knew exactly what they were up to. They knew that even though morale was probably quite high in Jerusalem, because the wall was being built, the morale would have been fragile. It would have been quite fragile, because they were living in a city which was essentially in ruins, and they'd had a rough time in the run-up. So it wouldn't have taken much to break morale, and so they mock the Israelites. But that wasn't all. In verse 7 and 8, we're told that when they heard the building was going ahead and they were angry, they plotted to fight against Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then in verse 11 they said before they know it or see us we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. So not only was there mockery but there was a threat. Now I don't know if that threat was ever really genuine. I don't know if the attack was ever going to happen because Nehemiah did seem to be on the side of King Artaxerxes but the threat was still there. Sanballat and his friends were clever. They, didn't just, they, they, they couldn't proclaim this kind of threat against Nehemiah because Artaxerxes mightn't have liked it. So what did they do? Well, they spread the word to other Jews. Did you see it in verse 12? Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. They spread the word informally to other Jews so that they would go to Jerusalem and say, they're coming for you. They're coming to kill you and put an end to the work it's gossip. And all of this mockery and threatening, it's meant to destabilize God's people, to make them doubt him. And it's all the work of Satan. I don't think much has changed in the years that have passed since then. Sure, what do you believe that for? Church? You wouldn't see me there. I don't believe any of that. It's silly. It's fairy stories. And you get people who will try to make you doubt. People close to you, maybe even people in church. I can say this because I don't know you well enough yet, but most churches have somebody who casts a doubt over everything. I'm not sure we should do that. I'm not sure that would work. I can tell you that before I went into ministry training, I had people who were close to me and who are Christians say to me, you sure about that? You know, it's a hard world for the church. It's going to get harder. Are you sure you're not just better staying where you are? Satan will always try to destabilize in situations where God is at work. And all of these things, that the mockery and the threats, they do have some effect on the people. Verse 10 tells us that meanwhile the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They hear the mockery the news reaches them and naturally they begin to doubt a bit. Was this such a good idea? We are building from rubble. But the first thing to notice is that they prayed and they prayed together. Verse 4, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Later in verse 9 it says that we prayed to our God when they were threatened with an attack. So they pray for God's help and that's fair enough. But my guess is actually that we would find the content of those prayers quite difficult and maybe even quite uncomfortable. Nehemiah actually asks God to turn back these insults on the head of the people who made them. He asks God to give these people over as plunder in a land of captivity, and he asks God to remember these sins and not to cover up their guilt. Now, if I was going to hazard a guess, I would say that when somebody hurts us, we probably don't pray in the same way. We probably don't ask God to turn it back on their own heads or or, or to, to not blot out their sins or to give them into captivity. We're New Testament people, aren't we? We're meant to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Sure, it's hard, but that's what we're meant to do. And I know that these two approaches look like they contradict one another, but I actually don't think that they do. I think that both can be equally true and valid because as God's people, as the church, when we face opposition that is clearly not from God, then we need to pray against it. We need to pray that it won't be successful. That's what Nehemiah is praying. Turn back their insults on their own heads. May those not affect us, Lord. May they be turned back give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. That's what Sanballat wants to happen to Jerusalem. He wants it to be rubble again. And Nehemiah is praying that this will happen to God's enemies so that God's people will be safe and it won't happen. And he asks God not to cover up their guilt. Well, if the guilt's not covered up, then it will be exposed. And then maybe, just maybe, when their guilt is exposed, they might realize what they've done and they might turn to God. I wonder, maybe, just maybe, Nehemiah might actually be praying that his enemies would turn to God. To put it in a nutshell, Nehemiah is essentially praying for God's judgment on anyone and anything who is about to hurt or to attack God's people. And this is a good thing. As God's people, we have a hope that one day all the, the sin and evil and sickness and all that is wrong with this earth is going to be dealt with in judgment. And we look forward to that day. It's a great thing. So clearly it's a good thing if we pray against all these things in the here and now. But there's no reason we can't do that out of a heart of love, even for our enemies. There's no reason that we can't ask God to turn back something onto the person who's attacking the church, but only if we do that on the hope that it will lead them to God. So if somebody's mocking us, what do you believe that for? It's silly nonsense. If somebody's mocking us like that, we want to pray to God that they won't succeed in convincing anybody, but we also want to pray that that idea would be turned back on them, that they would see the silliness and nonsense of their own words, and that they would come to know God in Jesus. So we can and we should pray against evil and pray for those who persecute us as a congregation, together and as individuals, and Nehemiah prays on his own in chapter six, we need to pray that people in this community would come to know Jesus, that he would build his church here, but we also need to pray against those who would frustrate our work, that they wouldn't be successful, but also that they would come to know Jesus themselves. So they pray, but as well as that, They remember what this is really about. They focus. Nehemiah reminds them in verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, so everyone, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Israelites, don't forget the Lord and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Do you get it, Israelites? Remember the Lord and remember people, brothers, sisters, family. It's not about a wall and it's not even about a city. It's about God, remember God, and it's about His people. Friends, it's not different for us. As we said about God's work in this place, it's not about this building. It's not about the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. It's not about Ravenhill Church. It's about God, and it's about people. And Nehemiah highlights that the struggle is for families. He uses that sons and daughters and wives language, that those people would find a future as God's people. And that's what the work is about, and that's what our work is about, so that there's a future for God's people here, that Jesus Christ may be proclaimed and known in the future for sons and daughters and even grandsons and granddaughters. That needs to be our focus too. What's the result? Well, the people end up working on one hand and, and holding a weapon in the other. They get on with the job, but they're also always, always ready for battle. And that's exactly how it should be. We have to get on with the work. And Marty talked about this last week. I mean, your support has been brilliant and amazing in everything that's gone on here in the last year and a half. And I realize that I've come in late to that. And I know that everyone here is grateful for that. But there's more to do. And we need to get to it. it. But as we do that, we need to be ready for spiritual attack. We need to be ready in prayer. We need to be aware that we have an enemy, and and we need to not be caught off guard. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Nehemiah simply says in verse 20, our God will fight for us. What a great promise that is. It's not that we don't have to do anything, but we fight in the knowledge that our God will fight for us. And it turns out like that. There's no attack on Jerusalem. So then Sanballat and his friends, well, they're not happy about this, so they go in for the kill. That's where chapter 6 comes in. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem turn their attention firmly on Nehemiah himself. They've tried unsettling the people, but that didn't really work. So let's go for Nehemiah. Satan doesn't just attack groups and churches. He's on the lookout for individuals too, and it's always been his way. He targeted Eve in the Garden of Eden. He targeted Judas among the disciples. And here the target is Nehemiah. So they send this message to Nehemiah, and it more or less says, Do you know what? We're going to have to live beside one another. We've been opposed to your work, but look, you've succeeded anyway. So look, come out and meet us, because we're going to have to work out a way to live together. And so they arrange this meeting at Ono, which is about the halfway point between them. But Nehemiah knows it's a trap. We don't know how he knows. Maybe he had a, had a spy or, or maybe God told him. We don't know. But he refuses to go. And he also realizes that it would be a distraction. He says, why should the work stop while I go down there? So he stays put. But then the enemy ups the stakes. The fifth time the messenger comes from Sanballat, verse 5. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. And this letter basically says, hey Nehemiah, I've heard that you're going to revolt. I've heard that you're going to make yourself king in Jerusalem and the king's going to hear about it. So why don't you come and meet us? The accusations are one thing, but did you see at the end of verse five, it's an unsealed letter. What does that mean? Well, it means that Nehemiah isn't the only person to have read this letter. It means that on their way, the messenger has shown this letter to everybody. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry has read this letter. Gossip. Not only have we come up with these false allegations allegations against you, Nehemiah, but we've told everyone, and the king's gonna hear about it. And then, just to compound matters, Nehemiah goes to the house of someone he trusts, a prophet, but he finds false words there. Sanballat has paid this prophet to lie, to trap Nehemiah in the temple. Nehemiah is in the midst of a spiritual battle, and it isn't pretty. But do you notice how much of it is tied up in words, and unkind words at that? The mockery and the threats in chapter 4. The gossip against the people and then against Nehemiah himself. Deceptive words from a prophet, words. If you've watched any news in the last week or so about Caroline Flack, then you'll know whatever has happened there, and it is complicated, but unkind words have led to destruction. Words are powerful, and they're a powerful tool of the devil. And all I've seen on social media in the last week in response is messages like this, be kind, always be kind, use kind words. And I agree. In fact, as Christians, I think we have all the more reason to be kind in both word and action. God has shown great kindness to us and has called us to show kindness to others in Christ's name. But is that enough? We all know that in this world, kindness, it's never really in vogue, is it? Ever? We live in a fallen world that is unkind. You and I could encourage people to be kind until we're blue in the face, but we know the world is still an unkind place. Unkind words are dangerous. The Bible doesn't tell us how Nehemiah felt about all of this. It tells us that he stayed on track, that that he continued the work and that he prayed, and, and that's pretty amazing. But it doesn't tell us how he felt. I imagine he was pretty worried. I imagine he was pretty scared. Nehemiah knew he was doing God's work, so he kept going, and he did so because God was with him and God was faithful. God always seems to be one step ahead in this story, doesn't he? Nehemiah knew that he was going to be drawn out into a trap. He knew that the prophet was lying through his teeth to him. God seemed to be going ahead of Nehemiah. He'd prepared him. In advance. What about us then? As we follow Jesus and as we serve him, as we seek to make him known, how do we face the battle? Well, I think it's all caught up in that phrase, isn't it? We're following Jesus. Because if you're following somebody, they're in front of you. They have to be to be following them. If you're following somebody, they lead you. And Jesus leads us I don't know if you ever watched the, the TV series Blackadder, um, particularly Blackadder Goes Forth. It's the one that's set in the trenches in the First World War. I don't recommend it for theological reasons, but I did enjoy watching it. But one of the central characters is General Melchett, um, played by Stephen Fry. If you haven't watched it, he, he's the general, and he sends the troops to their death from the comfort of his office without a care in the world. And at one point he says to Private Baldrick, he grabs him around the face and he says, don't worry my boy, if you should falter, I'll be behind you. And Blackadder says sarcastically, yeah, about 35 miles behind you. Jesus isn't behind us. He's ahead of us. Hebrews 12:2 and 3 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The word pioneer means a champion, that the example, the one who's leading the way. were to follow him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He faced opposition from sinners. He's been there first. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He leads the way and we follow. For him, it meant death. And we entered the battle with that same willingness to die, certainly to die to ourselves and to this world. Jesus does ask everything of us, but he doesn't ask anything that he hasn't first endured. Unlike the the general in Blackadder, Jesus isn't a general who's behind the lines. He's gone ahead of us. He's faced everything that the world could throw at us. But he's not only ahead of us. He's also over us. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. That's in Ephesians 1. Jesus has defeated the enemy, but note at the end of that verse the why. He says it's placed everything under his feet for the church, for us, for you. Jesus rules in heaven for the church. He protects his people and guides our mission. He sends his spirit to help us. We don't really have to work out the most strategic thing to do. There might be times when it's right to do that. But Jesus builds his church, and he organizes people to serve him. Our job simply is to give of ourselves and let him use us as he chooses in his grand strategy, which is to build his church. Jesus knew something of the unkindness of this world, about unkind words, unkinder than the ones even that Nehemiah faced. They blindfolded him, they spit on him, they hit him, and they said, prophesy, who hit you? If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. The spit of the soldiers on his face, the bite and and the whip into his flesh, the pull of the nails on his wrists. Jesus accepted them all because of his love for the church, for you. He could have had angels come down and rescue him from the cross, but, but he didn't. His love prevented him. And that's the love he has for you today. His love is the same yesterday and today and forever because he doesn't change. So if you're not following Jesus today, but but the unkindness of this world and all the struggles and all that are part of this cruel world are weighing you down, come to Jesus. Come to the one who has faced it all, who wants you to follow him so that he can go ahead of you and lead you in this world. This world is unkind and cruel, but he'll lead you through and eventually lead you to eternal life beyond this world where all that unkindness and sin and suffering just don't exist. And if you are following Jesus, know this today. (laughs) He loves you and he goes ahead of you in whatever you're facing right now. We will, as we were singing, become like him in his death so that we can live with him and never die. He goes ahead of you in whatever you're facing right now. So come to him. Fix your eyes on him. Look at him. And keep following him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God who is always with his people and leading and guiding us. So, Father, help us. Help us to do what we've been saying to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we won't grow weary or lose heart. Lord, help each one of us in the tasks that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.